Um, by the way, some of you guys know we have missionaries in Ukraine, um, the Rhymers, uh, and uh, yeah, they're they're not in Ukraine right now, which is good news. They went to Slovenia. They have another family that they work with, the Wicks. We've supported them in the past too, and so they are safe and out of there. But if you were wondering, um, they're they're okay. They're not there right now, but yeah. That's a good prayer request. So, uh, by the way, I also wanted to mention, um, you guys might have seen the sign out front when you came in and thought, is this a new sermon series for the door? Because somebody said that. It's not. There's a, We like to use our building for people in the community that are doing things. And so uh, Sun River Stars is a, is a community theater group, and we let them come in and do plays here. So if you're new and you've never seen that happen, uh, a few times a year they kind of come in and set up, and uh, and we just kind of let them use the building. So And this time Ron is actually... Uh, directing the play, which is kind of cool. So, um, and happy birthday. So that's cool. Yeah. Anyway, we're not, if you came here expecting to, to hear a sermon series on, on that, that's not what we're going to be doing. So we're going to be in second Thessalonians chapter one this morning and the kids can go to Sunday school. Of course, it's going to say that next, but while they're going, the rest of you can turn to second Thessalonians chapter one. And, uh, This is the second letter that Paul wrote to this church, which was made up of relatively new believers. And and one of the big concerns that they had was that somehow they had missed Jesus' coming. And needless to say, that would be a pretty freaky thing to to think you'd missed. I remember uh, long ago in my pre-trib days, I'm I'm not pre-trib anymore. I know that's not, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but this was when I was still in that camp. And I came home from, from work one day. Uh, we only had, it was me and my wife, and we had one son at the time, one one child, Nathaniel, who's here. Hi, Nathaniel. Uh, but he was a baby. So I come home, they're gone. They're not there. And that's not that unusual, but then I started kind of walking through the house, you know, Joy, you looking around, nothing. The cars were there. I thought, okay, well, they didn't drive anywhere. And then I looked, and the bikes were there. And then I, the stroller was there, and the carry, every mode of transportation was there, but they weren't. And I had that freaky thought for a minute of like, the raptures happened and I've been left behind. It was terrifying for a minute. Thanks a lot, Tim LaHaye. It was like, it's all I need. Turns out she just walked across the street and met a neighbor that she hadn't met before and decided to spend six hours there without telling me. But you know, crisis averted. So that was good. But, but no doubt the, 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 you know, thinking that you'd missed the coming of the Lord would have been extremely alarming. One of the reasons they were probably thinking this was because of the persecution they were going through as a, as a church. When we suffer, it's easy to assume that God is not for us, that God doesn't care about us or that he, that he, maybe he doesn't even like us. And, and maybe he's just changed his mind about coming back for us. That might've been a thought they had. I also imagine that as new recipients of grace, they were still reeling from the gift of salvation. I mean, you think about that. It, it, doesn't it seem too good to be true when you receive salvation from the Lord? It's like winning the spiritual lottery. It just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. How could this have come my way? Hopefully that still amazes you today as much as it ever has. That, that never grows old because it should be astounding to you all the time. You know, I always kind of laugh when when Christians say, I never win anything. You ever hear anybody say that? I never win anything. And it's like, eternity? <laughs> That's pretty good, right? That's worth something. The point is, though, that when we realize the magnitude of what we've been given, it's easy for us to begin to wonder why. And especially when we know that we don't deserve it even a little. And so in light of these things, it's no wonder that they thought Jesus might have come back and not included them. 
It's easy to come to that conclusion if we base it on whether or not we deserve it or, or, or something like that. And I would just admit, I, I still, to this very day, I don't feel worthy of any of it. I, I don't understand why God would save a wretch like me, but he has. So, so um, you know, if you ever begin to doubt like these Christians were doing, uh, there, are, there are comforts that God gives us in his mercy so that we can you know, have evidence that this is true, that this is real, that he really does love us, that he really did save us, that he really is coming back for us. And I'm glad that he gives us these evidences as comforts to us. So there's going to be three different ways that Paul comforts these Christians. First, he's going to let them know that there's no way that someone can mistake the reality of Jesus' coming. And he's going to dive into that even more in chapter 2. We're going to see that really clearly come out, but some in this, in this section too. Second, he's going to reassure them that true saints will persevere till the end, and they will be granted both relief and reward on that day. And then third, he's going to comfort them in their suffering by letting them know two things. First, that he's not unaware of what they're going through. He's not unaware of those who are persecuting them and the affliction that they're receiving. He knows about that. And a time's going to come when he's actually going to repay those who are doing it. And second, he's going to comfort them in their suffering by letting them know that it has a purpose. It provides evidence of salvation, and it also glorifies our God. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Second Thessalonians chapter one, starting in verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul starts out this this, uh, section by saying, this is evidence of God's righteous judgment. So we have to figure out what this is referring to. What, What evidence is he talking about? And the evidence is really important because of the thing that he says next. He said that this is evidence that those who have it will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. That's important. Now, it might be helpful for you to kind of think of a courtroom scene. I don't know if you're like me, but I love a good, you know, a good, I'm a sucker for a courtroom drama, kind of a movie type of type of thing. So here's the courtroom scene. We have God as the judge. We have the Christian as the accused. And then for the accuser, we have everyone who could come in with evidence against us to prove us guilty. Now, I don't know what, what your, your courtroom, you know, the imagination that you have going of your courtroom. Mine's not looking good. I, there's a lot of people there that could bring real accusations against me to prove that I'm not worthy of coming into the kingdom of God. If they pulled my rap sheet, I'm in I'm, I'm big trouble. And that's, that's kind of what we're facing. And then for these, these um, Christians in Thessalonica and for other Christians that, that are going through what they were going through, it's even worse because when you see the suffering they're going through, people will try to use that as evidence of like, look, you know, if God was for you, would you be going through this? Of course not. You know, clearly you deserve this. You, God doesn't like you very much. That's, that's what they would do in a courtroom. They would bring that evidence against you. Most people equate suffering with wrongdoing. So there seems to be more than enough evidence to convince a good judge 
that we're unworthy to enter the kingdom of God. Because the standard to enter the kingdom of God is perfect righteousness, perfect holiness. Does that add up in your life? You know, I think about that. If somebody were to just look at my life from beginning to end, not really. <laughs> so you, you, can, you can picture everybody in that courtroom going, this is going to be easy. This isn't even going to take any time to deliberate at all. You can picture kind of the uproar of, in the courtroom from all the accusers when, when they hear what God declares me to be. Because the truth is, if I'm a Christian, God says that I'm righteous. He declares me to be righteous and not guilty. Not crazy? And if you're a Christian, he says that you are also not guilty, that you are righteous. So you can imagine that the, the, the people in the courtroom would be saying, God's not fair. He's not fair. He's not a good judge. Is that true? Is God a bad judge? Is he corrupt? Can he be accused of injustice or favoritism, uh, double standards? Because we see that all the time in our world, don't we? You see, one person will get treated one way because maybe they have money or another person will get treated another way, maybe because of the color of their skin. We have these injustices all around us all the time where, where judges can become corrupt. And so, you know, you would assume, is that what's going on with God? No, no one will be able to accuse God of being unjust, unfair, corrupt, any of those things. He doesn't show partiality. He is not a respecter of persons. He is just and fair all the time. So evidence must be brought forth to, to basically convince our accusers and also to convince us that his verdict is true and right. So when Paul says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, we should all lean forward in our seats a little bit. <laughs> like what, tell me more about this evidence, please. Can I, I'd like to hear this now quickly. And, and the evidence is actually found in the verses that Pastor David covered last week. So I'm going to back into that just a smidge. So exhibit A is growing faith. Exhibit B is increasing love. And exhibit C is steadfast endurance in affliction. A person who is worthy to access God's kingdom will have these evidences present in their life. Now, again, if you're like me, you might feel a little bit of panic at this point. I'm not someone who is able to produce abundant faith, self-sacrificing love, and steadfast endurance when the going gets tough. In fact, anybody who knows me would say, yeah, yeah. When it comes to like the flight or fight or flight thing, you know, I'm, I'm the flight guy. So if these evidences are what's needed to prove God's judgment about us is right, I'm in trouble. But that's really the point, isn't it? If we had to rely on ourselves for these things in order for God's judgment to be right, none of us would be declared righteous. The righteousness we need has to come from somewhere else. So the fact that these are evident in the life of the believer proves that we are in Christ and that Christ is in us. That Jesus is righteous has been imputed to us, transferred to us. Otherwise, it wouldn't be there. That's the only logical explanation for these characteristics being in our life. But wait, there's more. It's also proof that we no longer have to face God's righteous judgment. We don't have to face his wrath. If, if we've been declared not guilty that punishment isn't going to come upon us either. So, so this is good, good news. So you picture, you know, before Jesus steps in, you picture God in the courtroom reading the verdict about your life and my life. The accusers have brought an ironclad case against us. We stand, we, we know we stand guilty. We stand, you know, guilty on all charges. And, and you, you kind of picture God getting ready to put the gavel down and, and, and sentence us. And right about that time, Jesus walks into the courtroom and says, wait a second. I'll take their punishment. I'll transfer my righteousness to them. 
they're with me now. So you don't have to punish them anymore. Isn't that an amazing thing to think about? Jesus did that for us. So in the courtroom of God, we're innocent. And that's the gospel. That's the good news of the gospel. So now, all of the evidence that I need shows up because of Jesus. Love shows up. Faith shows up. Perseverance shows up. Everybody knows me. Who knows me knows where they came from. It's not God knows where they came from. It's like, I've seen that somewhere before. Not in you, but I've seen it in my son. Right? So I know where it came from. And this is cool. I mean, you wouldn't find this unless Jesus had done this. And that's why God's verdict is just and right. Jesus has literally bridged every gap. I fall short when it comes to righteousness, when it comes to faith, love, perseverance, all these things. But Jesus doesn't fall short. It's not a coincidence that these characteristics started to show up in my life at the same time the Holy Spirit showed up in my life. They're called fruits of the Spirit, not fruits of Brent, fortunately, because <laughs> I, don't, I don't have those. But when, when you start to see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of a sudden these are here. Well, guess what? That means God's here. I love this. I don't know if you've noticed, but when Jesus you know, walked the earth and you watched how he, he behaved, he exuded this stuff. Was he able to love his enemies? Yes. Was he able to keep the faith and trust the Father in times of total despair? Think about the garden. Think about these times. Yes, he could do that. Was he able to persevere through the hardest trials? And did he remain steadfast and endure until the race was finished and the goal was accomplished? Yes. And he is in us. He is in you. That is the evidence that he's, that's why we're able to do the same thing now. That's why these things can show up in our life. Not because you're awesome, but because he's awesome. Not because you're faithful, but because he's faithful. Not because you're fearless, but because he's fearless. So God is not an unfair judge. The fact that these qualities of faithful endurance and love for others and hope in difficult circumstances exist is irrefutable evidence that Brent died and Christ now lives in me. That's, that's uh proof that his death, burial, and resurrection has had its finishing work in my life. And I love Galatians 2.20. If you don't know this verse, print it out, stick it on your fridge, and think about it. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's just good news. I am now completely innocent in God's courtroom because Jesus took my trial date for me. He stood in, took my punishment, paid my debt, and gave me the clean record that I could have never produced on my own. Thank you, Jesus, for doing this. Anyone who ever tries to accuse me now, they don't have a leg to stand on. It's crazy, but it's true. They can come and say, but, 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 and all I have to do is point to Jesus and say, no, but nothing. Jesus did this. He's, I'm with him and he's with me. And that's the answer now. I have been judged correctly by God and everyone will see that at some point because Jesus took, took, my, took it all. Now you might be thinking that sounds fantastic, but I don't see a lot of this stuff showing up in my life very often. You thinking that at all? <laughs> I did while I was putting this together. <laughs> it's like, okay, this sounds good in my head. This is good, right? But wait a second. How does this come out of my life? If you don't see this stuff coming out in your life, I think one of the reasons is you, you probably aren't doing anything to necessitate them. If you're just sitting on the bench and you're not in the game, probably not you know a lot of stats that are going to be showing up on the stat sheet for you. Does that make sense? 
right? We, we don't engage in kingdom work. We don't engage in the battle. We don't serve like we're supposed to. And then we wonder, why aren't these things showing up in my life? But guess what? When you start to do this, have you ever been in a situation where you start to talk to somebody about the Lord and all of a sudden stuff starts coming out of you that you're thinking, did I go to seminary or where did this come from? I didn't go to seminary, but all of a sudden you're just talking, you're saying things that are amazing and it ain't me. You know, have you ever been in a situation where trials came, you, you, you were about to be crushed and all of a sudden you had faith that you didn't know you had? You know, these things show up when, when we're in battle, when we're engaged. I've watched Christians go through things that should make them just fold like a cheap blanket and it doesn't do that to them. I don't understand it, but, but somehow when we get to the end of ourselves and become des- desperate for Christ, things start to happen. It's amazing. You know, we've all witnessed Christians go through things that could just crush them and cause them to despair, but they hold up triumphantly in a way that makes no sense. You know, it's like the more you squeeze them, you'd think that they would just pop. But, but what happens is you start to see strength coming out of them, hope coming out of them, faith coming out of them, love coming out of them. You see God showing up in their lives in a way that you know, it's him, you know, it's not the Christian, you know, it's God. These things that should cause us to lose our grip on, on faith and, and hope and assurance, they actually cause us to, to cling harder to them. They actually increase our strength and resolve. The power of God and the light of God go stronger and brighter. And, and, and it's just further evidence that he's there. That's the only reasonable explanation. God Almighty is present. And this is really describing the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, which is a precious doctrine to me because it, it tells me that God will preserve his people. He will finish what he started. Jesus said, of all, the Father, all that the Father gave to me, I will lose none but I will raise him up on the last day. Isn't it just great to think that this is in his hands and not yours? Because if it's in mine, I'm in trouble, you know? And I love Spurgeon's got a great quote about this. It's it's worth throwing out there. It's not your hold of Christ that saves you, but his hold of you. (laughs) Praise God. Yeah. Now, the reality is this, though. If someone does not persevere to the end, it means that Jesus isn't present in their lives. And this is something that we need to think about. Jesus told a story, a parable called the seed and the sower. We're we're familiar with it. A lot of times when he taught a parable, he didn't explain it. He just said it and walked off. And this time the disciples came to him and said, hey, can you, you know, what were you talking about? Can you tell us? And he does. So we we read it in Matthew 13. And it's all about these different seeds that represent the gospel and what happens. And the reason this is so important is because of what I just said. We all know people who seem to be in that we, we thought were Christians that were part of our group and, and you know, and then they, they, they vanished. What does that mean? So we're going to read this real quick. It's uh, starting in verse 18 of Matthew 13. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceit, the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and another 30. The first three walk away empty-handed. It's only the fourth, and even the fruit in the fourth varies. 
So some, some Christians, you know, you see the, the hundredfold. It's like, man, I can't believe the faith they have. Some you see, you know, wow, he's got a, he's got a few cents in his pocket, but Jesus is there. You know, it's just kind of that. And the, the, the first, you know, seed that goes out on the, on the ground, it says that they didn't have any understanding. Um, they, they don't see their need for Christ. Therefore, they're just not interested. Uh, that one we see a lot. We get. The second one does have some understanding. They see a benefit. They see like there's a benefit in, in having Jesus in my life. But at the end of the day, the cost isn't worth it to them because it says that trials show up, tribulation shows up, persecution on account of the word. Oh, if I follow Jesus, there's going to be a cost? Nah, I didn't sign up for that. And they bail. Right? That's kind of the idea. It says that there's no root in them. So, so you see something that looks like growth for a second, but, but there's no root. And the root, of course, is Jesus. We know that. That's not there. So, so they walk away. The third person in the parable also has some understanding. They see a need, but they're just not desperate for what Jesus supplies. They're more interested in what the world has to offer. And so they're driven away because they think the world's benefit package is better than what Jesus is offering. It's like, well, that I want him to be there. I want him to kind of enhance my life and, and be there when I need him. But I really want to focus on these things over here. They care more about this life than the life to come. So they check out. Now, the last person is the one who has counted the cost and understands that their need for Jesus outweighs everything else. I don't know which one of these describes you, but literally, I just think whatever the world has to offer me, it doesn't compare with what Jesus brings me. What gives you know, it just doesn't compare. It's like, oh, you can give me all the riches in the world. You think about Jesus, even in the wilderness, all the riches in the world can be yours. I don't care compared to Jesus. That's nothing. But you'll never have to go through anything hard. You'll never have to go through a trial. Like if, if you, it's like compared to what? You know, I mean, I, I, that doesn't lure me away. I don't, that doesn't bother me if I have to suffer a little bit because I have Jesus. He is worth more. And then and that's the point where if you're not at that point where, where he's everything, you're willing to like go all in with him, then I, you're not part of the fourth seed parable there. And th- this is something we've literally watched play out in the church over the last couple of years. The minute that Christianity got inconvenient or dangerous or costly, people bailed. We've just seen it happen. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who's left isn't a Christian. Don't, that's like cult-type language. I'm not saying that. Sometimes people leave a church and go to another church. That's, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that just flat-out stopped coming. I don't know where they went. They just evaluated and said, man, it's not that important to me, and they walked away. What does that mean? <laughs> I don't know, but it's really concerning. It's extremely concerning to think about. At best, it means they're taking a break and they'll be back at some point. At worst, it means they were never really of us. And that breaks my heart. Doesn't that just break your heart to think about? They weren't really in Christ. They thought they were. You know, I wish that everyone that came to the door stayed at the door. <laughs> I do. Uh, yeah, I'm a people pleaser. I like to make, make people happy. It's my nature. Drives Pastor David nuts sometimes because I can be very, uh, yeah, I won't even go into that. But, but I, I want to make people happy. It's my nature. Um, and so th- this idea of like, okay, let's do whatever we have to do in the church to, to make sure that happens. You know, that, there's that temptation. And a lot of churches do a really good job of this. They, they make sure that everybody's happy all the time and they grow big. Um, I'm always surprised when people stay. So the fact that we've got all these people, thank you for coming. This is fantastic because, you know, this idea that we would try to do whatever it takes to keep people here. And you think about the parable we just read, how ridiculous is it to lure people into your church doing the same things that drove people away in the, in the parable? 
It's like, well, we'll tell them that, that their, their life will get better. And they'll never have any problems. Come to Jesus and all your wildest dreams will come true. We'll tell them that and then they'll stay. Well, we just read that that's actually not going to keep them. Or you say, you know, you'll never have to go through anything hard. If you come to Jesus, your life will just be perfect all the time. You won't get sick. You'll have money. You'll have, that's the kind of stuff that prosperity gospel, that's what gets taught. We don't do that here. We don't tell people kind of what their itching ears want to hear. We preach Christ crucified for sinners. And we think that's enough. You know, if you want to hear something other than that, I don't have anything better than that. That's the best thing I can tell you. If that doesn't appeal to you, I don't know what else to give you. Jesus loves you and he gave himself for you so that you could live. And by dying to yourself, he, I mean, that's like the, nobody wants to hear the message of the cross, but that's the message that saves. I always think of Peter when everybody else left Jesus. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. Everybody leaves Jesus because he's teaching something that's hard. And he comes to Peter and he's like, you, you, out of, you out of here too, Peter? And he just says, where else am I going to go? And that's how I feel. Where else would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I, there's nothing else out there for me. You're everything. So Paul assures them that the true believer will persevere till the end. They will finish uh, the cross, the finish line, and that they have been made worthy to enter the kingdom of God by Christ. And this is really good news, especially in light of the fact that these people right now were suffering because they were part of the kingdom of God. He wants them to know that there's an end in sight to this and that he's not ignoring those who are afflicting them. You know, God loves his kids. And when somebody's hurting his kids, he's not ignoring that. We, we think that sometimes, but he's not. So look at verses six through eight. Since indeed God considers it just, sorry, we're back in second Thessalonians. I'm there in my head, but I don't know where you guys are. So it's all on the same page. Second Thessalonians. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction, those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now we've already established that God is a good and righteous judge. We talked about how an unbeliever could, could you know, wrongly accuse God of letting sinners off the hook um, and, and that idea. But, but the truth is that believers can do the same thing. We can also accuse God of unrighteousness. We can, we can wrongly accuse God of letting unbelievers get away with sin. Have you ever done that? Kind of, you know, you look at what's going on in somebody's life and it's like, Lord, why are they getting away with this? Why, why aren't you doing something about it? You know, they're getting away with murder and you're not doing anything. We, we, we can do that same thing and accuse God wrongly. But according to what we just read, God is going to do something about it. There is a day of reckoning scheduled. Justice is coming. He's not turning a blind eye. He's not ignoring evil. And he's not, nobody's getting away with it. And, and that's kind of a comfort to me. Uh, there's something infuriating about the idea of somebody getting away with murder. You know, I just, I'll, you know, imagine if you will, a white Bronco just slowly driving down the road. That kind of thing, if you know, you know, it drives you crazy. Like, this is not right. How is this happening? We have justice wired into us by God. And when someone you know, is wronged and they don't come to justice for it, it doesn't sit well with us. But, but God is saying, rest assured, justice will prevail. They will stand before a holy God someday and they will answer for what they've done. They're not getting away with anything. So Paul talks about this day of relief that is coming for the Christian. And part of that relief is because God will avenge his people of the wrong they've endured. Um, and, you know, he's going to do that. But, but the other part of that relief is that the persecution stops. <laughs> There will be no more suffering for the Christian. There will be no more um, difficult things that we have to go through. It won't happen again. Just think about that word relief. 
It's a great word. Doesn't that sound good? You know, Webster defines relief as a, a feeling of reassurance and ra- relaxation following release from anxiety or distress. So it's just that <sighs> relief that's coming. And you might say, well, when, when is it coming? Tell me when, well, it tells us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. That, that, that word revealed is where we get our word apocalypse. It's, it's the idea of the day of the Lord when Jesus returns, the second coming of Christ. That's when that relief will ultimately be realized. Sure, we get some relief now, but that's when the, it will finally happen. So it, it's this day when Jesus brings relief for the believer and vengeance for those who do not know God and don't obey his gospel. And, and so it's, it's, an, it's a really weird day. Relief for one and absolute terror for another. And this really is a terrifying statement. Verse 9 goes on to say, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's not something you really want to dwell on, but, but we should from time to time. You know, this is a very different depiction of Jesus than a lot of people have. Um, it's, it's funny what we do. You know, everybody likes to picture Jesus as just this peace-loving hippie that went around handing flowers to people and just talking about love and stuff. And, and I, I understand why, but Jesus did come as a lamb the first time, but the second time he's coming as a lion and, and it should just absolutely terrify people, you know, and I hear people say all the time, well, I don't like that version of God. <laughs> it's like, I don't understand this. People say, don't read the old Testament because it's just, you won't like that. You know, God's a lot nicer in the new Testament. Guys, it's like you can't, that's not, that's not how it works. That's not how any of this works. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's chosen to reveal himself exactly how he wants to in the Bible. And you have a choice. You can either accept the revelation of the way he's chosen to reveal himself, or you can create a God in your own image. You can, you can just come up with one, a God of your imagination and just run with that. But that's not the God you stand before. You stand before the God of the Bible. So, so I don't, you know, any version of him that doesn't align with, with this is, is not the right version. I love this quote by J.C. Ryle. It's fantastic. Beware of manufacturing a God of your own, a God who is all mercy, but not just, a God who is all love, but not holy, a God who has a heaven for everybody, but a hell for none. Such a God is an idol of your own. He is not the God of the Bible. You know, the good news is you don't have to face him as an enemy. He's done everything necessary so that that doesn't have to happen. He's forgiven your debt so that you can face him as a friend and not be terrified at his coming. The day of salvation, though, is now. So don't mess around with this decision. Everything is at stake. God is a just judge. A penalty must be paid. The cost is high and God is the ultimate debt collector. He's not going to just miss it. You know, you hope that maybe they just won't see that. No, he sees it. He knows everything. Well, what is the cost? What are we talking about? Paul lists it for us. And it's just shocking to hear, but it's, it's, it's been, it's in the Bible for a reason. It's, it's for us. We need to hear this. The first thing he mentions as far as the cost goes is eternal destruction. Just think about those two words for a minute. Eternal destruction. Jesus described hell in the most graphic and vivid terms possible. He talked about it. You know, he said blackest darkness. He said a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He said it's a place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. 
it almost brings me to tears every time I read that. A place where the worm will, will never end up with something not to feast upon. That's terrifying. It also says that they will be isolated from God's presence. You know, we can't appreciate what this means in, in this world today. We always, have, we always have glimpses of hope. We always have common grace. We can always see a little bit of blue sky come through the clouds right now. It's never as bad as it could be. But this is describing all common, common grace is gone. God's presence gone. God's goodness gone. Kindness, love, all those things gone. And you're left with just... The, think about how that would be. It's just broken, rotten, horrible. And then, it, and then lastly, it says that we, they will be cut off from the glory of his might. Have you ever been in a situation where you realized no one was coming to rescue you? That's what this is describing. You're cut off from his power. You're cut off from his might. There is no savior. There is no one to, to rescue you. And, and what this, this is described as eternal. As Christians, we would probably all say we believe hell is real and that, that people will end up there. The problem is we don't act like we believe it, do we? I mean, if we, if we did, wouldn't there be some urgency? Wouldn't there be like a willingness to tell people? You know, hell is my least favorite thing to talk about on a Sunday morning. I'll tell you straight up. There's just, no, you know, who likes to talk about this? And yet it's here for a reason. God, God wants us to acknowledge this. You know, we think about it as being the most offensive thing we can tell somebody. But, but in actuality, if, if this is true, it's the most loving thing we can tell somebody. And if they believe our testimony about Jesus, rather than being terrified on the day of the Lord, they will experience what is described in verse 10. I love this. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believed because our testimony to you was believed. Have you believed this? Have you believed in the Jesus of the Bible who's died buried and resurrected for your sin? Have you bowed to him as Lord? You know, Paul wraps wraps up this chapter with a prayer for these Christians who are going through very difficult things. And and it's a really good prayer. It's the same kind of prayer we should be praying for each other, especially as the days get darker and we begin to get squeezed a little bit more as Christians. Uh, This is a really good prayer. So verse 11 says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying we should be praying, God, prove us worthy of your calling. Prove us to be the real deal as your people. So, so as the temperature gets turned up, start, start just shining out of us like light to the people around us that see it. Prove that we're worthy of your calling. Help us to love the things you love and hate the things you hate. Help us to, to, to cling to the things that you love and, and just repel the stuff you don't. And then help us to get engaged in kingdom work. Help us to, to get, off the, get off the bench and get in the game. You know, this is so important. His power, not ours, but, but we, we, we want to pray that he would help us to accomplish every good desire and every faithful action. And then what's the result of this when the church starts to do these things? Glory. God's glory being seen in and through his people. It's an, it's an amazing thing. I love when I see God glorified in his church. Like, like we're just a light that's shining out into the community. Hopefully that's what this, this church is like. But God's glory is often brought out most through our suffering. And I know nobody wants to hear that, but it's the truth. I love that the, you know, John Piper once famously said that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him in the midst of suffering, not prosperity. 
that's when you really see it start to show up. And so as much as I don't like the idea of it, I know it's real and true. It's evidence that we are in Christ and that he is in us when it happens. It's, it's evidence that shuts down our accusers, which is kind of cool to think about too. And then it brings glory to the one true God. So there's no mistaking where it came from. It proves that Christ is real and that he lives in us. And, and because of that, I can have full confidence that I'm worthy to enter his kingdom. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I know I can, I can walk into his kingdom worthy because of Christ. And then, and then lastly, the suffering that I may experience while I'm here and that you may experience while you're here has nothing to do with God punishing you if you are in Christ. The punishment went on him, so it doesn't have to go on you. Rather, it's proof that you're aligned with Jesus, right? We were told if you, if you hang out with him, if you follow him, the world's going to treat you just like they treated him. So if we suffer for our faith, you know, it's because we're aligned with him. And that, and that gives me some, some hope. And I just want you to know also, just, just in closing, it's, it's kind of funny to think about Paul writing this stuff. You know, Paul left town in the middle of the night while they were going through this. And then he writes this letter to him. It's like, that's great, Paul. You know, you're standing over there in safety. And, and here you are saying, hey, you can do it, you guys. You know, you got this. You know, Paul was speaking from experience. He knew exactly what this was like. And Paul was the champion of, I mean, I can't even imagine Paul looking through the things we complain about today when I think about what he went through. But this is what he said in Philippians uh, chapter one. Remember, he was, in, he was in prison there. And he wrote about this very thing to encourage us. In verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you, um, or whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Um, Father, we are, we are grateful first and foremost that Jesus suffered in our place, that he was willing to do that for us, Lord. And if we just, if we just suffer a little for his sake, what a privilege that is. Help us to see it that way, Lord. Um, I, I, we, none of us understand why Jesus would go to the cross on our behalf, and yet we believe he did. And that by faith in that, in, in the, faith in the finished work of Jesus, we can be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Lord, we have this truth. We have this word from you that, that saves people. How dare we not tell others? So give us a heart and a burden for the lost. Just like, a, you know, make, make, help us to make it hard for people not to get, you know, to either to go to hell or, or you know, make, help us to get them into the kingdom, whatever it has to take, Lord. We pray that you would use us. We pray that you would be pleased to um, shine your light through this church in a way that is evident that you're here. And uh, thank you so much again, Lord, for saving saving us. Lord, we are forever in debt. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.